Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Glad you're here for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool awaits. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, our good martini is definitely not good news for a certain Republican, but uh, it's good news for conservatives nonetheless. Uh, This is courtesy of USA Today first. Uh, The FBI served a warrant to Republican Senator Richard Burr as part of its investigation into his sale of stocks ahead of the market crash due to the coronavirus. The Los Angeles Times first reported that Burr, who chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee, had his cell phone seized on Wednesday night by federal agents at his Washington residence, citing an anonymous law enforcement official. NBC also reported that the senator was served an FBI warrant and that his phone was seized. Burr's office declined to comment on the matter when reached by USA Today on Wednesday night. Uh, But we have more news today because Burr has decided as a result of all this, at least temporarily step aside as chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. The long and very uh, emotional statement from Mitch McConnell reads like this. Senator Burr contacted me this morning to inform me of his decision to step aside as chairman of the Intelligence Committee during the pendency of the investigation. We agree that this decision would be in the best interest of the committee and will be effective at the end of the day tomorrow. End statement. So, uh, Jim, Mitch McConnell, pithy as always. This is obviously not what you want to see from a Republican chairman or any chairman for that matter. But uh, as you look at this, you see some reassuring signs here, and that's why it's a good martini. Yeah, look, one of the things that jumps out at me is, first of all, everybody who's been screaming that Attorney General Barr has politicized the Department of Justice and turned it into a uh, partisan tool of Republican agenda and not interested in enforcing the law and all that stuff, please, uh, you don't get to collect any winnings. Sorry, you get nothing. Uh, if, you, if this really, if that rhetoric was true, the FBI would not be investigating a Republican senator. Um, but the, the larger one that comes out of this, it's interesting. Yesterday we were talking about the race for Katie Hill's seat. Look, if you're a lawmaker or a member of Congress who gets caught with your hand in the cookie jar, that's not really meant to be any type of sexual metaphor, uh, but you can get the, the idea there. If you get caught doing something, one of the things you can do is retire and you know announce your retirement, you're resigning from Congress. That will shut down any ethics committee investigation into you. Uh, and then you go off and you make a good living outside of that. And if you're an elderly member of Congress who's been there for a long time and Burr is not expected to be around for, for much longer, um, the easy thing to do is to just say, ah, you know, he's almost on his way out anyway. Ah, let's let this. And I think everyone would agree. This is, no, this is way too big a deal. You don't get to uh, do effectively insider trading based on what you're being told as chair of a committee. And you don't get, you're not supposed to personally profit uh, from your inside and information that you have because of your responsibilities in government. And, oh, you know, um, my understanding, Greg, is that also his brother-in-law got the information as well. So his brother-in-law was being told about the seriousness of the upcoming pandemic, but not the rest of the American people. Um, look, there's an exculpatory version of events from Burr. I'm all ears for hearing it. But by and large, this, you know, everything we've seen so far looks like this is him knowing that, oh, this is being really, really bad. His statements to the general public were much more um, reassuring, much more, I don't know if you can necessarily say downplaying the threat, but certainly not treating it as if it was going to be this grand era defining uh, life disrupting threat that it is. And he's, you know, dropping all of his money that he had in, in uh, you know, companies would be adversely affected by this. 
So look, this is, you know, we'll see what happens. He'll have his day in court. He hasn't even been charged with anything yet, but um, I think it is good to see that the government is holding someone accountable. And um, I think sending a very clear signal that we expect better from our lawmakers than when they get told about something that's really, really ominous. Their first thought should not be, wow, I'd better go check my portfolio. Jim, we'll see what happens here. Long way to go. There's, there's not necessarily a reason to believe that Burr will have to leave office before the end of 2022. Uh, but we mentioned this back when these allegations first surfaced, then it's worth pointing out again. Yes, North Carolina has a Democratic governor who has to run for re-election this year, by the way. Uh, but North Carolina also has a law that requires that if there is a vacancy to be filled, it has to be of the same party of the person who's leaving the office. So uh, Governor Cooper in North Carolina could not name a Democrat to replace Richard Burr, but we're a long way from that. But speaking of replacing people, you mentioned Katie Hill, and uh, we talked yesterday about how Republicans looked like they had picked up the seat, and now we have even more evidence of that. The votes from the mail ballots are still coming in, but the Democrats are already conceding the race, which is usually a pretty good sign. Uh, So Mike Garcia, the Republican, will be the new congressman from California's 25th district. But Katie Hill has a statement out, Jim, uh, today. It says, the community I love, my home, is hurting today. I stand with you as I always have, but we are resilient. This is the moment to come together. Stay united in our desire to improve our community and fight. Onward to November, hashtag CA25. So Jim, that was a great coronavirus, uh, let's hang in there everybody message until we realized that she wasn't talking about the community hanging together through the pandemic. It's that she's crushed that the Democrats lost her seat. You know, Greg, does she just have a template she uses for all tweets and... (laughs) What are we talking about here? Pandemic, uh, special election results. Eh, you know, messaging works the same. As you were reading through those first few sentences, Greg, I thought, it would, I thought we had lapsed into a commercial. <laughs> because, you know, in these times of uncertainty, we all need to come together. I think the absolute worst is Kaiser Permanente saying, the decisions we make today will shape tomorrow's, our futures of tomorrow, or some sort of, you know, fortune cookie, Hallmark card. <laughs> Stop it. Just stop it. And if you're PO'd, you lost the election. Say, okay, I'm really PO'd. I lost the election. Really angry that people decided I, you know, that the House Ethics Committee was going to investigate me for having a thruple with staffers. If that's what you mean, come out and say it. Go ahead. Don't, <laughs> don't go to this, hmm, is, is the election of a Republican? It's kind of a pandemic in its own way, isn't it, Greg? <laughs> uh, Either way, people will die. Well, anytime the Republicans get their way, people are going to die. That's pretty much what we've learned here. But uh, Jim, I think my, uh, my, my least favorite response during the pandemic is, you know, if you bought anything online from any retailer, you got an email from them probably back in March that said, in these uncertain times, we want you to know that we're thinking about you. No, no, you're not. You're just like <laughs> trying to figure out a way to squeeze a few more dollars out of me, which I get. Times are tough right now. But just tell me your deal and uh, let's not try to pretend that you developed some really close bond with me because I bought a $20 item from you back in 2015 or something. So, Greg, every, every one of those emails, the subtext is basically something's terrible is happening and um, we have a mailing list. <laughs> so we feel the need to say that. It's the second most annoying email I'm getting these days. The single most annoying email I'm getting lately, Greg, is the emails from the otherwise fine company Bed Bath & Beyond that really, really wants me to rate the refillable carbon dioxide canister that I got for my home seltzer making machine. Apparently, I'm supposed to evaluate it and tell people how great the carbon dioxide was. Yes, it was the correct molecular structure that 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 I requested. 
Well, let's talk about our bad martini now, Jim. And it's not like you and I are in the business of uh, giving advice to Joe Biden, but uh, Joe Biden is effectively the presumptive Democratic nominee. We usually don't give that title until they've eclipsed the number of delegates required for the nomination. But uh, in this situation, Bernie's already dropped out. He's endorsed. I mean, it's it's uh, unless there's some uh, shenanigans at the convention or at the DNC level, Joe Biden's going to be the nominee, even though a quarter of Democrats still wish he'd be replaced on the ticket, which might be why he's doing this. But nonetheless, Biden and Bernie Sanders are putting together unity task forces which indicate that uh, Biden is still tacking hard left in order to uh, shore up his base and less about trying to win over the middle, what's left of the middle these days. And so this task force includes some interesting characters, uh, including one top Sanders ally named Stephanie Kelton. Kelton, according to the Washington Free Beacon, is a leading advocate of modern monetary theory which rejects concerns about deficit spending and calls for the funding of radical progressive policies by printing more money. AOC has said the theory should be part of the conversation and Kelton pitched the theory at the Wall Street Journal's 2019 Future of Everything Festival. Of course, now that we're passing trillions of dollars worth of relief, that doesn't seem all that uh, unusual these days. But he's also got AOC with a prominent role on the climate task force, which means he's uh, jumping in with both feet on the Green New Deal. I think he just held a uh, online session with Beto last night, so you know where he is on guns. You know, Joe Biden was the uh, the return to normalcy here, Jim, but uh, his his platform's looking a lot more progressive than uh, I think he started off with and most people would want. Yeah, I'll admit, Greg, I'm having a hard time envisioning a Democratic Party that cares even less about deficits and the de- debt, but I, I suppose <laughs> that is theoretically possible. I'm sure economists and scientists can come up with some way for them to uh, care about this less. The the other thing that kind of jumps out about this because you know I, I, today's morning jolt I lay out all the all the challenges are going to face whoever takes the oath of office on January 20th, 2021, and it's it's a lot of uh, challenge. It, it, you know, economically in terms of health, we might have a vaccine by the end of the year, but that's kind of optimistic. Um, socially, uh, you know, educationally by every measure of our life, right? The problems are really not going to have gone away by January of next year. And I lay out that, you know, isn't it reassuring to know we've got Donald Trump and Joe Biden as our two <laughs> options to, to take on what is probably a, a challenge that would make, you know, Reagan, Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, you know, groan in anxiety with, uh, with, with, with the scale of the task before us. And so when I do criticism of Trump, uh, there are some readers or some folks will say, well, okay, you obviously support Biden then. I'm like, no, what are you kidding me? Have you watched the videos out of, out of Delaware? You know, you're, you're, you know, most days he's lucky if he can remember his own name. Um, I exaggerate slightly, but you know, he's, he's not looking great. And people will say, oh, Jim, you know, I remember you guys during the uh, when the Democratic primary was more competitive, you preferred Biden to Sanders. Well, yeah. I mean, like, give me a choice between the out-and-out socialist and back-slapping good old Joe Biden. You know, sure, I, I preferred the less ideological of the two, but that doesn't really mean um, that Biden is, by you know, I, I keep saying Biden is a centrist by the standards of the mainstream media. And by that, they mean he's usually in the center of the Democratic Party, not in the center of the entire U.S. political spectrum. Still, to the extent, you know, Biden's got something going for him, it's, it's probably that sense of, hey, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not Bernie Sanders. I am not some radical. Don't you need some sense of reassurance right now, America? Don't you feel like um, you've had too much change? You've had too much sweeping. Isn't it, you know, doesn't a return to normalcy sound really good right now? 
And he doesn't seem to want to emphasize that. He's apparently still worried about unifying the party. He's still worried about uh, bringing on the Bernie Sanders supporters. And this is one of the things that makes him really just, you know, uh, not an acceptable option for myself. Uh, besides the fact that I'm not a Democrat, you know, I voted for Democrats every now and then in the past, but not very often. And usually it means either Republican wasn't running or the Republican um, had been caught in some sort of terrible scandal or something like that. The thing about Joe Biden is that he, you know, he's not a radical in the Democratic Party, but he also doesn't believe that he was put on earth to fight the radicals in his own party. I don't think he's anything like, say, Joe Lieberman, who was going to support the Iraq war, no matter how much the rest of the party absolutely hated him for it. Uh, Joe Biden wants everybody to get along. He's a backslapper. He's a deal maker. Uh, it's one of the reasons Republicans generally preferred to work with him back during the Obama years compared to President Obama or various other figures. He was reasonable enough. He was not on their side, but at least he was reasonable. But the point is, is that Joe Biden is also not going to leave the AOCs and Bernie Sanders of the world, you know, with nothing. He's, he's going to basically make concessions to them. So a president, if you could guarantee there'd be a Republican Senate, Republican House, and a President Biden, eh, that might not be so bad. You could end up with something like the, the second half of the Clinton administration. Um, but with a Democratic House and with the possibility that Democrats would win the Senate, I think right now you'd probably say, okay, if Biden wins the presidency, it means Democratic turnout's pretty good. They probably have a good chance of winning the Senate back. Joe Biden at the, at the helm of an all-Democrat-held uh, U.S. government, that, that's going to push policy in the left really, really fast. It's deeply, deeply uh, ominous for, for if you're on the conservative side of the spectrum. So, you know, look, Joe Biden, there are a decent number of anti-Trump right-of-center folk out there. And I think it's pretty clear that the Joe Biden, his campaign is either convinced they've got them already, or they're just not all that. They don't think there's any point in pursuing those voters. And you know, if that's a strategy you want to go with, uh, to, you know, if I could put in a GIF right here, I'd say, you know, I'd, I'd show Morgan Freeman saying, well, good luck with that. <laughs> Jim, when you look at the way that this campaign has unfolded, I don't think there's any position where Biden has drifted an inch to the right. And you probably wouldn't expect that. But I don't think he's stayed put in most positions either. I mean, I remember a, a debate where he was confronting Beto and saying that uh, you can't do that. We got a constitution, man. And uh, now they're buddy-buddy on, uh, on the gun agenda. Uh, I don't think he was for banning fracking at the start of the campaign, but that's kind of where he got pushed on this. He and John Kerry have very different personalities, obviously. Joe seems like a more regular guy, and, 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 uh, and Kerry's much more aloof and so forth. But they both kind of strike me with this, look, what position do you want me to have that's going to help me win here? I'll do whatever you want. Am I wrong on that? No, I think you're actually, you're, you're very accurate on that in, in the sense that going back to, you know, the, you look back to when people were, were seeing the rise of Trump and there was this philosophy of, look, this is a guy who loves being on television, loves giving rallies, uh, loves, you know, raging on Twitter. He's not really a policy guy. He doesn't like to get into the weeds and the details of, of these sorts of things. Um, and the old, you know, the philosophy that says by the time a decision gets to the president's desk, it's been narrowed down to about two or three options. Uh, personnel is policy, as they said in the Reagan administration. So what really would matter are the people around the president. Well, I think we've seen some interesting observations on that in the Trump presidency. But look, Biden himself is, you know, going to be entirely determined by the staff around him, uh, particularly if you, if you suspect that he is not as mentally sharp as he used to be. Uh, you're, you're right. The example of, you know, he's going to, you know, he could rebuke Beto one moment, but then he says he br eagerly brings Beto onto the team. Um, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of Rodney King to Joe Biden. Let's all, can't we all just get along? And, and so he's not in the business of challenging the rest of his party. When people are complaining about, you know, Joe Biden's stands that are out of, out of step with the rest of the party, 
they generally mean things he said back in the 1990s and, and maybe back in the, uh, uh, you know, early days of the Obama administration. But, and, you know, the argument that the Obama administration wasn't progressive enough for these people. But it's not like Joe Biden is a force for centrism that's pushing back upon any of this. And I think you're right. I think that, you know, the, the rhetoric from uh, Biden is relatively generic. Uh, the policy, you know, the white papers might be more detailed, but let's face it, Biden, we're lucky if Biden's even looked at that stuff. Never mind that he's had any <laughs> real hand in, in, in he certainly, the odds are not good that he's going to remember those white papers anytime. This is all on the assumption that white papers produced during campaign have some relation to the actual policies enacted by that administration. And that's, you know, they've never been more than a distant relation to begin with. But uh, so, yeah, the idea that, you know, look, Biden will, will pretty much sign whatever, I was going to say, whatever a Democratic Senate, uh, you know, Congress sends to his desk. Honestly, I think whatever any Congress sends to his desk, he's not, he's not, you know, going to be, you know, it's not quite a rubber stamp. He's not going to, doesn't want to be a guy who's constantly fighting either the Republicans or his, uh, uh, his own party. And if you don't like the direction of the Democratic Party, that makes him a kind of a bigger gamble than you'd like to have heading into what's probably going to be still a very challenging time for the country. All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini. And this deals with the White House right now. Yahoo News is looking at the efficiency and effectiveness and accuracy of these quick tests uh, for the coronavirus that are being used in a number of places, including the White House. And here's what Yahoo says. The study looked at Abbott Laboratory's ID Now molecular COVID-19 rapid test, which Trump hailed as a whole new ballgame at a March 30th news briefing because it boasted of delivering positive results in as little as five minutes. But the New York University researchers concluded that when testing swabs were stored before use in a stabilizing solution, the Abbott test missed at least one third of positive results that were found using a different, more time-consuming procedure called the Cephide Expert Express SARS-CoV-2 test. Man, that just rings. That's great branding right there. <laughs> Last month, responding to concerns about false negative results, Abbott changed its protocol to recommend using dry nasal swabs rather than storing them in a solution that could dilute the samples. But the researchers concluded that actually increased the rate of false negatives to 48%. So Jim, best case scenario, uh, you've got a lot of people potentially coming into the White House and other places where this test is being used that might actually be positive, but we're not knowing about it. Yeah, I saw this story, Greg, and my reaction was just profanity, 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 except I didn't say profanity, uh, because this is, this is really ominous. This is really bad. And you think about, look, um, for all of my criticism of the president, uh, I really don't want him to get the coronavirus. I, I think, you know, we saw the experience of Boris Johnson, uh, you know, the president is in his 70s. He appears to be in good shape for a man of his 70s, but you, know, you just never know with this kind of disease. And I want the president, whatever my disagreements with him, on his post, able to make his decisions, you know, able to handle his duties to the best of his abilities for, for here on out. And the possibility and, and you know, protecting a head of state uh, is probably going to be a little more challenging than protecting anybody else because just, the, you know, the job just requires them to interact with lots of people. And I think it's pretty obvious the president does not like to wear a mask, kind of feels it would be some sort of non-reassuring message to the country. I think some people have argued accurately if the president wore a mask, maybe lots of other people would wear a mask, but he doesn't want to. Fine. Uh, he's, the, the job will necessarily have him interacting with lots of people throughout the day. I'm glad the people in the, in the White House are starting to wear the mask. Um, but even if, let's say, this NYU study of these coronavirus tests is, is exaggerating how often they give a false negative. Look, when it comes to testing, false positives are, are you know, really frustrating and scary. 
But, you know, worst comes to worst, you quarantine yourself and you didn't really need to. And, you know, you're okay, right? What really frightens you or should really frighten us is the possibility of false negatives because this means you have the coronavirus, the test tells you you don't, and you go around interacting with people, not trying to self-isolate and the possibility you will spread this further. And if you have a decent number, and I guess it's really frustrating. Let's, okay, let's assume this NYU study is, is not measuring the tests accurately or, or something's wrong with that. Let's assume... You know, that's not half and half. Okay, fine. Um, even the best tests are going to be wrong. Eh, you know, if, if you get 95% accuracy, you think you're doing terrific, right? If you think you got 90%, you're doing fine. 80%. Right? Well, think about how many tests they're doing in the, in the White House every day. A considerable amount, right? Sure. So if you're, do, if you're getting a 90% correct, but you're doing uh, 100 tests, you're going to have 10 people, uh, you know, that they're getting the wrong, the wrong result. And if they have false negatives, they're going to walk around and perhaps interact with the president, not knowing that they have the virus and could, could potentially spread it. Um, I'll be honest. I don't know how you, you can, you know, obviously there's no guarantee of not getting, of keeping the president away from this, but the possibility of the testing, you know, but just the sheer scale of how many tests you're going to have to do. I hope they're testing people regularly. I know we've been, you know, arguments about whether there's enough tests and, uh, how frequent is enough and things like that. Um, look, we know people on the vice president's staff have, uh, have, have tested positive. It's in the White House. Uh, you know, ideally, maybe we'd have the president's isolated, kind of like the way Boris Johnson was. Um, this, you know, or, or maybe you just say, okay, you know what, we got, we, we got to live with a certain amount of risk. We'll go ahead with this. But um, this report is particularly ominous. Any amount of false negatives are really a potential huge problem for this White House. Um, you know, keep, keep knocking on wood and praying and hoping because uh, it just seems like keeping the president away from the virus and keeping the virus away from the president are, are just going to be much more complicated because of the difficulty of getting tests that are 100% accurate. And obviously it only takes one person. Jim, not only are you not wishing for the president to get coronavirus, I haven't confirmed this, but I'm guessing that you're also not cheering for other members of his staff to get it and potentially die. I bring that up because you talked about uh, Pence staff members being diagnosed positive for coronavirus. One of them is his press secretary, Katie Miller, who is the wife of Stephen Miller, who is obviously a, a controversial figure given his uh, input on immigration policy. I'm guessing you saw the Twitter venom, particularly from the left, but not always, that they hope Stephen Miller not only gets it, but dies from it. I mean, this is getting to a pretty sick level. Yeah, there was a, it was, it's kind of horrifying. We, we've seen this every time someone famous on the right dies. There are idiots who jump onto social media and sometimes even celebrities will say, oh, I'm glad this person is dead. I hope they suffer. You know, all, all just kind of horrible thoughts. I, I, I could, you know, rebuke those people, but those people I think are beyond, uh, they, they've, they've, they've lost their consciences. They've lost their ability to determine between right and wrong. Um, they quite literally are, they, there's something, there's something kind of inherently sadistic about that and uh, that they not only disagree with their, uh, people on the other side, they not only want to see them, uh, uh beaten in elections, um, they actively want to see other people suffer. And what's really kind of fascinating is that one, half the people who do this, Greg, have a no hate logo in their avatar. Um, and also they believe that they're the good people. They're the compassionate ones. They're the caring ones. And they never feel more caring and compassionate than when they're wishing for pain upon other people. You are intolerant. I will not tolerate you. Oh, amazing. All right, Jim. Well, that's Thursday. See you tomorrow. There is a rumor going around that tomorrow is actually Friday, like a real Friday. Wow. That'd be awesome. And it's going to be really warm here. So you actually get outside a little bit. Anyway, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg.
Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please do subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. Get us on those home devices and just say play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us on Friday, yes, Friday, for the next Three Martini Lunch.